growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. The uh, events that occur are historical facts. They weren't historical to Daniel. Daniel's writing them before they ever happened. History. For most people, it was a class in school that they didn't care much for. Sometimes it's hard for us to find relevance in events that happened hundreds or even thousands of years ago. But what if knowing things from history could affect your future? It's a safe bet that a lot more people would be interested in history. This is history before it even occurred. God was writing in advance and saying this is exactly what's going to happen. I'm Rick Freeman. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. Well, it's hard to believe, but we're drawing very close to the end of our study of the book of Daniel. If you followed this study with us, you probably know that we've been in this series since the beginning of this year. Books of the Bible that contain a significant portion of prophecy aren't something that can be rushed through. And we certainly hope you've gained new knowledge about the book of Daniel from this study. And we hope that this study has helped each of us gain a new perspective of just how big our God is and just how much He is in control. Today we're in chapter 11 of the book of Daniel, and it contains probably the most detailed and complex prophecy in the entire book. If you look at the historical and the textual evidence that is available to every one of us, you have to come to the conclusion that this is a supernatural work. Only God could give us the information that's given here hundreds, in some cases thousands of years before it ever took place. We're going to be a couple of weeks in Daniel chapter 11 before finishing up with the last chapter a couple of weeks from now. But today, follow along as Pastor Clay unpacks some of the details of this remarkable chapter and shows us again why our God can be trusted with everything that comes into our lives. Now here's Pastor Clay. We are in Daniel chapter 11. Okay, now we're in Daniel 11. Now, you don't have to turn to Daniel 11 yet, but we are in Daniel chapter 11. I don't want you to turn to Daniel chapter 11 yet because last week, and those of you who are here, I'm sure you are keenly aware of that. I'm sure you remember uh, distinctly that last week we were in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, and we were looking at Uh, the prophecy that is in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. And and I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of material in there to cover. It is uh, is one of many prophecies in the book of Daniel, but for me, Daniel chapter 9, this prophecy is is the most important prophecy in in all the book of Daniel. They're all important, but that one just for me is is just um, really uh, important for an understanding of how God works and all, all that's, that's going on. And we dealt with it as best we could, but I'll be honest with you, I just felt like that, especially towards the end, we were flying through it, rushing through it, and just didn't have time to, to really do justice to a part of that prophecy. And so I want to just go back and just briefly touch on it to, in case there's some questions or things like that. I know we'll deal with all the questions and not everybody's answers will come or something, but, but I just felt like I really needed to do that. Uh, we looked at last week, the prophecy that is known as the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. It's called the 70 weeks prophecy. That's what we refer to it as. And it's based on verse 24. The King James New American Standard uh, says in verse 24, now 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. It goes on like that. And uh, we, as we worked through that last week, and we looked at the 70 weeks prophecy, uh, we looked at the fact that one week and I explained it more then, so you can go back and listen to that message if you weren't here. But one week equals seven years. And, and Daniel's prophecy, when he, when he refers to a week, that prophetically it's referring to a grouping of seven. And we know 
uh, that it was a grouping of seven years. So one week, one week equals seven years. So 70 weeks equals <laughs> what? 490 years, right? Y'all even got it up there and you're not saying it. 70 of those weeks would then equal 490 years. 70 groupings of seven years, 490 years. Um, we also learned from Daniel uh, chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, specifically I think in 24, that those weeks are broken into three parts. Y'all remember this if you were here? If you're new here, thank you. Thank you for that. If you're new here and you're saying, I don't even know what's going on, it's okay. Hang with us. Seven weeks, 62 weeks, and one week. Now last week, I, we did as good a, as you can do in one, you know, one setting, so to speak, uh, one sitting. We, we did a pretty good job of looking at the seven weeks and the 62 weeks for a total of 69 weeks or 483 years. I memorized it. That's the only reason I knew what it was. I, I don't think that, I don't multiply that fast in my head. 483 years, uh, the first 69 weeks or 483 years of God's prophetically dealing with the nation of Israel. Remember? That's what we talked about, prophetically dealing with the nation of Israel. We looked at those first 483 years. And one of the things that we discovered was that by 70 AD, God had, had dealt with the first 69 weeks of this prophecy that he gives to Daniel in answer to Daniel's prayer about what are you going to do for the nation of Israel. Uh, we know, looking back historically, that 69 of those 70 weeks were finished by 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem. We looked at that amazing prophecy that told us exactly when the Messiah would come, that told, then told us that, which would have been a shock to Daniel and everybody else that read it, that we then told that the Messiah would be cut off, he would be killed, and then after that, would become, would, uh, Jerusalem would once again be destroyed. So that occurred, we know, we can look back historically, we know that occurred in 70 AD. So by 70 AD, AD 70, whichever way you want to say it, uh, 69 of the 70 weeks have been fulfilled. You with me? So the question then becomes, what, what happens? Where's the 70th week? Where's that one? Remember, three parts, seven weeks, six, two weeks, and one week. Where is that one week? Where does that one week fit in? What came into the uh, prophecy, what Daniel almost certainly didn't understand and probably didn't see, was that there was going to be a gap, a space between the first 69 weeks and the 70th week. We have the, again, we know this because we can look back historically. Daniel couldn't. It was all future for Daniel. But, but we can look back and see how this has played out, or at least those first 69 weeks. What Daniel didn't understand or know that there was going to be a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. And it's that 70th week that I want to deal with. The gap in between and I think I mentioned this last week, but the gap in between is what is known as the church age. That is the age, ladies and gentlemen, that you and I are in right now. We live in the period of time between the, the uh, Christ's ascension into heaven after his crucifixion, resurrection, rose from the dead, hung around with the disciples for a while, and then he went back to heaven, right? Everybody with me? And you remember that, uh, that promise where, where, where two angels showed up and standing beside the disciples as they're watching Jesus go, and the angels kind of, they're like, they really kind of get onto him. They said, hey, guys, why are you standing around staring up into heaven? This same Jesus whom you've seen go shall come again in like manner. Go get busy, is basically what they, what they said to him. So the time between his, his ascension and the time that he comes back 
and establish his kingdom on this earth, which he will do, by the way. Physical, earthly kingdom. A kingdom of righteousness that he promised to Daniel 9, uh, 24, of everlasting righteousness. The time in between those two uh, dates is the church age. Now, we know it's been a little over 2,000 years at this point, right? But Daniel didn't know that. As Paul says in Ephesians 3, this, this was a mystery to the Old Testament prophets. God didn't really reveal to them about his plans for the church age and how, what he would do. His church is being built as people are coming into relationship with Jesus Christ and it's expanding and all that sort of thing. So we're back to the idea, well, what about the 70th week? Well, let's read uh, Daniel 9, 27. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation because um, I think do a pretty good job with explaining it. And here, here's Daniel 9, 27. The ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven. That's that 70th week that we're looking for. The ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven. But after, the, but after half this time, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And as a climax to all of his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. Daniel 9, 27. By the way, just so you'll know, and I'm, I'm cutting to the chase on this. I did, gave a little bit of explanation, I think, last week on this. But uh, the, the, the ruler, the one who has come, the ruler who is to come is the Antichrist. It's referring to the Antichrist. The people, it's the nation of Israel. It's referred to as the beautiful land. And, all, you know, you, you, can, you can put the pieces together and figure out uh, what it is. But the ruler... Uh, is the Antichrist, the people, is the nation of Israel. And what Daniel tells us, or what Daniel receives in his prophecy, is that the Antichrist and the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, are going to sign a peace treaty. And the day they sign that peace treaty begins, that's what verse 27 says, the day they sign that peace treaty, the last seven-year period begins. You got me? We know that as the great tribulation period. That's what we refer to it. Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25. Most of the book of Revelation is explaining this tribulation period and what's going to go on. Revelation 5 through Revelation 19 have this description of what all is going to happen during the tribulation period. Now, let me say this. There is some disagreement over whether the church, remember we just, the church age, that gap in there that Daniel didn't see, there's some, specu- there some uh, disagreement over whether the church will be here during that 70th week of the nation of Israel, when, when all that's happening, that tribulation period. Some people believe, and I happen to be in this camp, some people believe that the church will be raptured or snatched out uh, prior to, to the beginning of that seven-year period. I gave my uh, reasons, my justification, my evidence uh, for why I think the church is removed before that last period of time. I gave that when we spent a year in the book of Revelation. You can find that online and, and listen to it if you, if you want to hear it. But uh, it, it, I don't think we're going to be here, we being the, the church. But there are other people that believe that the church will still be here, that it will go through at least part, if not all, of the tribulation period, that the that we'll have to go through it and experience it. Arguments can be made either way, okay? I'm not, I'm not dealing with that today. Arguments can be made either way. But what is not debated is that the day the ruler, the day Antichrist and Israel signed this peace treaty, begins the countdown to the return of Jesus Christ. Seven years from that day, and you can, if you're here, you can mark it on your calendar. I'm not planning to be here, but 
If you're here, no, whatever. I don't care. If we're here, we're here. If we're here, Travis is storing up plenty of food, so don't worry about that. So, uh, but the, the day that peace treaty is signed, that's what Daniel says. That begins the last seven-year period. So that, ladies and gentlemen, that's the 70th week. And I just, I just kind of rushed through that last week, and I wanted to at least bring out a little more clarification, and I may have just muddied the waters for you more. I don't know. But that's the 70th week. Seven weeks. Uh, Israel goes back into the land. They rebuild Jerusalem. 483 years, the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. Then he's cut off. Then Jerusalem's destroyed. That's the 62 weeks with the seven weeks for 69 total weeks. Gap, church age, and then comes the 70th week, the day the Antichrist and Israel sign a peace treaty. That begins the last seven-year period. All right? Got it? All right. Let's look at chapter 11. Chapter 11 of Daniel. We're, we're going to get through about, uh, we're, I plan to spend two weeks in Daniel chapter 11. Let me just say this. Daniel chapter 11 is the most detailed and complex chapter in all of Daniel. Boy, aren't you glad? Because <laughs> if you've been in this study, you're thinking, oh my goodness, more. Yeah, Daniel chapter 11 is the most detailed, the most complex of all of the prophecies of Daniel. It is, therefore, the most uh, discussed and debated of all of Daniel's chapters. Uh, and when I say that it's the most debated, I'm really referring to the second half of, uh, of Revelation 11, after verse, uh, from th- verse 36 on. Uh, that's the part that's really debated, and well, I'll explain that next week when we get into it. Um, but but uh, the first part is not debated. The events, the, the, the people that are listed, that part is not debated. And it's not debated because it simply cannot be debated. The, the persons mentioned, the uh, events that occur are historical facts, ladies and gentlemen. You understand what I'm saying to you? They weren't historical to Daniel. Daniel's writing them before they ever happened, right? Se- separate that in your mind. We look back, Daniel looked forward. We look back, we have the luxury of looking back and see how how those events and those people came along exactly as Daniel prophesied that they would. So there's no debate about that. What is debated about the first part of Revelation chapter 11 is something I've mentioned before, and that is the date that it was written. When was Revelation 11 written? Because for those who have what I call a supernatural bias, and by that what I mean is they, they for those that discount supernatural, they, uh, supernatural, no, I don't believe that there's supernatural things that happen. I just, I think everything can be explained naturally. If you have a supernatural bias and you read what we're going to read this morning in Revelation 11 and then you compare it to your history book and see how those things were fulfilled, you, you, you look at it and you say, well, there's no way this guy could have written this hundreds of years before it happened. It is so exact. It is so precise. It, it, he said to Daniel, and he said he wrote, you know, in the fifth, no, that's got to be a lie. This guy wrote right when these events were happening or right after they happened. So if you have a supernatural bias, that's where it's going to take you because there's no other explanation. Y'all understand what I'm saying? But if you don't have a supernatural bias, if you're, if you're open and you say, hey, okay, I don't know, maybe it's natural explanation, maybe it's supernatural, uh, you know, uh, is, is, can this be explained or that, or is there really Sasquatch, you know, maybe it's, I don't, you know, whatever. If you're open to whatever you might uh, discover and you look at the historical and the textual evidence that is available to every one of us, you have to come to the conclusion. If you're open and you look at the evidence, the empirical evidence, you have to come to the conclusion that this is a supernatural work. In other words, God 
used men to pen it, but God is the author of it. Because only God could give us the information that's given here hundreds, in some cases thousands of years before it ever took place. So it's complex, all right? It's, it, it, it is, and, and you're just, we're going to discover uh, some of that. But that's, that's just the way it is. But we're going to break it apart. I think you're going to begin to see some of it. We're not going to deal with it as much detail as perhaps I have in some other uh, chapters, and I think you'll understand why in a few minutes. But I want to read, I'm going to read this morning, Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 through 35, okay? If you have never read Daniel chapter 11, yeah, you're going to say, what? What? But hold on. Daniel chapter 11. You got your, you got your Bibles out? Got your iPads and wherever you've got it? Daniel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. And then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. And then the king of the south will grow strong, along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His domain will be a great dominion indeed. And after some years, they will form an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her as well as he who supported her in those times. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and he will deal with them and display great strength. Also their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, he will take into captivity to Egypt. And he, on his part, will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. His sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through, that he may again wage war up to his very fortress. The king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north, and then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hands of the former. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. For the king of the north will again raise a great multitude, then former, and after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army. And much equipment. Now, in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Then the king of the north will come 
cast up a siege ramp and capture a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it. But she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. And then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. But a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. And then in his place, one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days, he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. In his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. And after an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war. But he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. And those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow. But many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. But it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. And then he will turn to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before, for ships of Kittim will come against him, and therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the holy covenant and take action. And so he will come back and Show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. And those who have insight among the people will give understanding to many. Yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder. For many days. Now, when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join with them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. (laughs) And you thought the other chapters were complicated. I know that's a lot, but there's just no way around it. It's a lot. Let, let, me, let me just try and get into this the best we can. Uh, if you like to take notes, there's an outline on the back of your, your uh, bulletin, your information sheet. You can fill some blanks in if you like to do that. Um, Daniel chapter 11, uh, this, well, let me start out by saying this, okay, before, before I do. 
it's pretty much agreed by almost all students of, of the book of Daniel that verse 1 of chapter 11 uh, belongs to the end of chapter 10. In other words, chapter 11, verse 1 is actually uh, chapter 10, verse uh, 22. That's what it actually should be. Now, that does, doesn't mean that there's an error in the Bible. Uh, you need, if you don't know this, you need to understand this. The Bible did not originally have chapter divisions and verse divisions in it. It, it. Those weren't in there. Somebody added those later as a way to make it easier to learn Scripture, as a way to memorize Scripture. And, and, and it does help. I mean, knowing that having these verses break down like that does make it easier to learn it, does make it easier to memorize it, but it doesn't mean that those chapter and verse designations are infallible. Do you understand? The Word of God is infallible, but not necessarily the way it was later bracketed together. So, so chapter 11 really begins in, uh, in verse 2 and continues on. This is, by the way, the last uh, prophecy that Daniel gives. Part of it actually goes into the first three or four verses of chapter 12, but it's all one uh, prophecy. The prophecy, and, and we've got some stuff to help you on the screen, uh, but the prophecy is divided into three main sections, the, the entire prophecy. We're, we'll look at two of them today. Uh, time willing. But the prophecy is divided into, th- in, into three main sections. The entire revelation has three main sections. Are you, got, you, got, you with me so far? This, uh, this is how I kind of break it apart and looking at it and, and what other people say and, and all that kind of stuff. The first main section is this. It is the time, it, it records the events from the time of Daniel to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. And you find that in, uh, in verses 2 through 20. The entire First main section covers verses 2 through 20. It records the events from the time of Daniel, really the end of Daniel's life, because Daniel and Cyrus are, are kind of right together. We, we're pretty sure Daniel died before Cyrus left the throne. He's at the end of his life. He's native. So basically from the time at the end of Daniel's life until the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, if that name, if Antiochus Epiphanes sounds familiar, we talked about him back in chapter 8. Uh, pretty extensively, and I will have more to say about him in a few minutes. I bet you can't wait. But the first section of the prophecy is the time from Daniel up to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. All right? Now, that first main section, there are three sections. Is that what I said? There are three main sections? The first section, thank you. That first section is divided into three parts, or I divided into three parts to try and make it a little easier to digest. Okay? You with me? All right, here we go. First part of the first section are the prophecies concerning the Persian Empire after Cyrus. I'm not going to reread all of it. I just went through and read every bit of it, but you can look at it. If you've got your Bible open, you can look down at verse 2. Verse 2 records the prophecies concerning the Persian Empire after Cyrus. You with me? The, the prophecy says in verse 2 that four kings will arise after Cyrus, four kings of the Persian Empire, right? Remember, Daniel's writing, looking forward. It hasn't happened yet. Daniel's writing about what's going to happen. We're looking back. That's why we know that he's absolutely spot-on accurate with it. Daniel says four kings will arise. Now, Daniel doesn't give us the name of them. It doesn't matter. History does give them to us. They, they, those four kings are hard word, hard word, and Darius the Great. Now, I mean, it's, well, it's, I think it's Cambus, uh, Gamada and Darius the Great. By the way, uh, this is not the Darius that we looked at earlier in Daniel. If you've been throughout the study, that, they, they use the same name a lot. 
back then. Let's face it, you'll see that uh, in, in just a few moments. Uh, so, but did you notice, if, you looked at, if you're looking at verse 2, you may notice it says four kings, but then it kind of it separates the first three, and then it makes a distinction for the fourth king. Y'all see that in verse 2? The reason is because the fourth king was arguably, but I think most people probably agree with this, arguably the most powerful king that the Persian Empire ever had. His name was Xerxes. Xerxes was the fourth king, the fourth ruler of Daniel's prediction of four kings to come. Now, if you're looking at verse 2, you'll also notice that it says in verse 2, the latter part of verse 2, that he, the fourth king, Xerxes, will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Do you see that? He will, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. We know that's exactly what happened. Xerxes tried to invade Greece. Now, if you could care less about history, and uh, for you, your history book was nothing more than to prop your fan up on or something, uh, this Xerxes is the same Xerxes mentioned or or referred to or portrayed in the film, The 300. Y'all seen that film or you know something about it? This is that Xerxes, all right? I'm I'm trying, I'm wanting you to see that this isn't just some, hey, let's just write some stories about something. I don't know. Let's come up with somebody's name. Kamaya, that sounds like, no, it's, this is, this is real stuff, folks. And Daniel's writing it before it ever happens. This is the same Xerxes mentioned in the film, The 300, which basically uh, retells the story of the, the Battle of Thermopylae, uh, where uh, 300 Spartans stood against Xerxes and his invading hordes. Uh, just about a year after the Battle of Thermopylae, Xerxes' uh, navy was defeated or wiped out with a storm. There's some uncertainty about that uh, at Salamis. And the main body of his army that was on the ships, many of them were destroyed and many had to, had to turn back. Uh, ancient historians have numbered that army, by the way, at anywhere between a million to two and a half million men in that army. They were turned back uh, after the Navy uh, was sunk and defeated and all that kind of stuff. They, they, they were on the ships, they, they, whatever, they had to go back. That left uh, Xerxes' land army of a little over 100,000 men left who were then promptly dispatched, destroyed, wiped out by 10,000 Spartans and 30,000 Greeks at the Battle of Plataea. If you've seen the film, perhaps you remember this ending. Barely a year ago, long I pondered my king's Cryptic talk of victory. Time has proven him wise. But from free Greek to free Greek, the word was spread that bold Leonidas and his 300, so far from home, laid down their lives, not just for Sparta, but for all Greece and the promise this country holds. Now, here on this rugged patch of earth called Plataea, Xerxes hordes face obliteration! Just there, the barbarians huddle. Sheer terror gripping tight. Their hearts, with icy fingers, 
knowing full well what merciless horrors they suffered at the swords and spears of 300. Yet they stare now across the plain at 10,000 Spartans commanding 30,000 free Greeks. Rescue a world from mysticism and tyranny, and usher in a future brighter than anything we can imagine. Give thanks, man! To Leonidas and the brave 300! The victory! It's awesome, man. If I if I if I coached a football team that was that was the way underdog, I'd have to show them that just before they went out on the field, man. You see, you see what I'm saying to you, folks. This is history before it even occurred. God was writing in advance and saying this is exactly what's going to happen. That's exactly what happened. And I'm trying to help you understand that. Now, listen. Uh, that that's the that's the first part of the first section. All right, records those, those four kings. The second part of the first section is this. It is the prophecies concerning the Greek empire. And that's in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, and, and we've talked about him before. This came up again, I think, in Daniel chapter, uh, maybe been 7, 6, somewhere in there. Uh, we, we know, and it's pretty obvious if you look at it and looking at your history book comparing, that uh, the, the mighty king of verse 3 is Alexander the Great. <clears throat> verse 3 and 4 Prophecies concerning the Greek Empire, right? Alexander the Great rose to power, crushed the Persians. Do you see how all this is tying together? Do you see how God, man, God is so awesome. Can I just stop right there? Time out. God is so awesome. Do you see how God is working? It was, most historians agree that it was the Persians' um, ruthless attack on the Greeks that then inspired Alexander to, to, not, to crush the Greeks and then move on from there and expand his kingdom. And it's just amazing how God used all of this stuff. So the mighty king of verse 3 is Alexander uh, the Great. But just like the prophecy says, just like you can read right there, as we just read a moment ago, no sooner does he establish his kingdom, not only, not, no sooner does he become the most powerful king uh, on earth, I think at 27 uh, years of age, I think it's 30, something like that, Alexander dies. Most people, most historians say after a, a night of drunken revelry, he died. Cause is not quite clear, but he dies. In his place, and we, we looked at this before, but in his place, four of his generals divide up the kingdom. Just as the text says, the four points of the compass, just a way of saying it's divided into four parts. So, get, see the picture? Persian, strong, powerful, pow, smack down. Alexander takes them out. He becomes powerful. But he no sooner becomes powerful than he dies and four uh, generals take over. The text says that. Not of his own descendants, the text says, but four others will take control of, of the kingdom. Now, you might ask, well, uh, you know, why, why didn't any of the descendants take over? Alexander did actually have uh, one illegitimate son, from what I understand, and his, and his wife was expecting. 
Um, but the four generals took it. Uh, as I understand it, historically, uh, Alexander's wives and, and children were, were all murdered. They're all put to death. These four guys take control. Uh, those four guys, I'm going to give you these names. It may not matter to you, but, but we'll make a connection here in a minute. They were Cassander, uh, Cassander who took uh, Macedonia and uh, Greece, Lysimachus, who took uh, Thrace and Asia Minor, uh, Seleucus, who took uh, Syria and most of the Middle East, and Ptolemy, who took Egypt. Those were the four generals. Got it? You with me? Alexander, king, uh, Alexander dies. Four generals take over, just as the prophecy says. It's divided into four parts. That's the second part of the, of the first section. The third part of the first section concerns the prophecies dealing with the kings of the north and south. And notice that's where the lion's share of the rest of this takes place. Verses 5 through 20, and I read all that. How many times did y'all hear king of the north, king of the south? Right? A bunch. Right? Verses 5 through 20, the third part of the first section, record the prophecies concerning the kings of the north and the south. All right? Persia, top dog, knocked off by Alexander. Alexander dies, four kings, or four generals take over, divide the kingdom in, into four parts. From verses 5 through 20, then, the, the prophecy follows two, that was hard to do, <laughs> follows two of the four generals. It follows their kingdoms that they established. And you say, well, why, why does it only follow uh, two of the kingdoms? You, you know this if you think about it. It follows two of the kingdoms because they are the two kingdoms, the two empires that deal with the nation of Israel. Remember? Remember? Who's, who's this about? Who's this for? Israel, right? We said from chapter 7 on, it's, it's really, it's all about Israel. It affects other nations. It really affects the whole world. It brings other nations into it. But this is about Israel. This is about God dealing with Israel. This is an answer to Daniel's prayer. This is God displaying what he's going to do to the nation of Israel. And so the prophecy concerning the kings of the north and the south. Well, let's look at the kings of the north and south. Let's look at a map real quick. Bring a map up here. Uh, I don't know how, if you can see that or not see that. But Israel, uh, if you, if you, if you're a little geographically challenged, Israel is that little strip of land up there uh, right below Syria and right above Egypt. It's kind of that little tiny little thing, right? Got it? Got it? Guess what country lies due north of Israel? Uh, no, actually Syria, but close. Yes. See, can you see it? It's due north of, of Israel? Syria. Who got Syria in the division of the four kingdoms? You remember that? Uh, that's a, that's, uh, I'm giving you a hard question. Seleucus. Seleucus got the northern kingdom, which, which com- comprised Syria. By the way, basically the same Syria that's been in the news and all the stuff's happening. Everybody's not going on. I'm just telling you. So Syria, Seleucus, or the Seleucid dynasty, is the kings of the north. You got me? That's the king of the north. On the map... What lies due south of Israel? Egypt. Who got Egypt in the division of the four generals? Ptolemy. So Ptolemy, or the Ptolemaic dynasty, became, becomes the king of the south. That's how the Bible describes them from here on out, because those are the two nations that 
interact with each other. And, and, we, and we read it, you know, back at what, what happens is you get in this, this tug of war, it begins to occur. King of the North is in control, then King of South comes in and takes over, then the King of North comes back and takes over, and then the King of the South. By the way, it's not the same person every time. I guess you understand that. Kings get bumped off or they die and, and, their, and their descendant takes over, but they're just constantly referred to as King of the North, King of the South. You with me? King of the North, King of the South, back and forth, back and forth, trying to determine who is going to control this region, this part of the world. And guess who's stuck right in the middle? Israel. Israel. When I was growing up, uh, when I was younger, I had to uh, share a bed with my, my two older brothers. Because I was the youngest, I always had to sleep in the middle. Anytime they got into some fight, argument, disagreement about whatever, inevitably it would lead to violence. Inevitably, it would lead to kicks and punches back and forth, back and forth. But guess where the majority of those kicks and punches landed? In the middle, on me. The majority of them would always land on me. My mom would come running in. If you don't, if you don't stop making your brother scream, I'm going to give him something to scream. No, he didn't. That, that's where Israel was. Israel stuck in the middle. North, south, north, south, north, south. Hey, by the way. By the way, if you know anything about the nation of Israel and the coming of Jesus, the Messiah and all this kind of stuff, can you, when you, when you look at this kind of stuff, does that give you maybe perhaps just a little bit better appreciation? Not that it was right, but a little bit better appreciation for why Israel was so set on having a, a Messiah come that was going to restore their glory, that was going to restore the kingdom. Because listen, they have been tossed back and forth. The Babylonians had them, the Persians had them, the Greeks had them. Now the north and south can't decide, is it Syria, is it, is it, is it Egypt, is it Ptolemy, is it Seleucus? They're back and forth, back and forth. They've been tossed around so much, eventually only to be put under the iron rule of the Roman Empire. Now, it's not that it's right. They should have recognized Jesus as the Messiah. But, it, but we at least have a little better appreciation for why they were so expecting, wanting a warrior Messiah instead of a suffering servant. So, uh, again, let me just say, in verses 5 through 20, there is so much detail. I mean, you heard me reading all that. There's so much detail. It would be impossible to to go through it all. I I was reading this week, uh, John Calvin, a a pastor and and reformer, uh, many, many years ago. John Calvin wrote over 40 pages of commentary just on this one section of, of Daniel chapter 11, trying to deal with all the people, all the persons, all the events, everything that's, that's happening. Take it easy. We're not going to do that. We're not, we're not going to do that. It just, we just, we just can't do it. All right. But I do want to, I do want to point out a, a few things. I do want to you know, see a couple things. It'll just to help you understand this a little better. Let me give you, let me give you an example. In verse 6, I'll give me an example of how detailed God is when he talks about something before it ever even happens. In, in verse 6, there's this account of how a, uh, a daughter of the king of the south, the king of the north, king of the south, basically enter into a political alliance, uh, and they do so by the king of the south giving his daughter to the king of the north. Do y'all remember hearing me read something about that a minute ago, or you can look in verse, verse 6. Um, they're going to enter into a, a political arrangement. I'm going to give you my daughter to marry, and then you know we'll, we'll be fighting all the time. It'll be, we'll be good to go, and we can decide how to split up, whatever. Um, so we're going to divide it up. But then the prophecy says that she will not, uh, I think it says something like, she will not retain her position. You see that if you're looking at it? She will not retain her position, nor will the one who put her there, nor will the one who sired her, 
But then in verse eight, it says, I think it's in verse eight, then an, but another, one of her, someone from, of, her, of her line will rise up and, and you can, I'm reading between the lines, or I'm filling in real quickly, but basically will uh, take a bunch of stuff from the king of the north, a bunch of gold, a bunch of silver, and a bunch of idols, and carry it back to Egypt. Do you know that's exactly what happened? Historically, her name was Bernice. She was the daughter of Ptolemy II. And Ptolemy apparently had no problem giving his wife, uh, giving his daughter away in an arranged marriage, but apparently had some scruples because he said, you cannot marry my daughter until you divorce your first wife, uh, Laodice. You can have my daughter, but not until you, you know, we got to do this right. <laughs> you got to divorce your first wife, Laodice, of which Antiochus Theos, that was the king of the north at that time, does so. He divorces Laodice. He marries Bernice, and everything apparently is fine and dandy until about two years later when Ptolemy II, are y'all with me? If you are, it is absolutely, don't tell me God's not real. If y'all are hanging with me, it's, it's a miracle. But until about two years later, Ptolemy II, he was who? King of the South. Come on. King of the South. Ptolemy dies, at which point Antiochus Theos promptly brings his first wife, Laodice, back into the family. Apparently, Laodice is not into the whole sister wives thing. <laughs> and apparently not in a very forgiving mood because Laodice promptly murders Bernice and her husband, Antiochus Theos. But then guess what happens? Ptolemy III, the brother of Bernice, wants to revenge his sister's death. So he attacks the king of the north. Oh, I think I read something about that in there. And according to the historian, ancient uh, historian Josephus, Ptolemy headed back to Egypt with 4,000 pieces of gold, 40,000 pieces of silver, and 2,500 items and idols uh, taken out of the temples in Syria, in the northern kingdom. Exactly as Daniel said it would happen. And we could go on, we could look at so many folks, there's so many we could look at. But all I'm saying to you is, this is God. This is who God is. So uh, we're going to stop here. I won't even go to the second section because it's going to be very brief next week anyway. That second section is going to be brief. Um, But this is God. Can I just say this to you? Uh, This is a probing question. I want you to think about yourself as we get ready to close. What are you not trusting God with in your life? Because I suspect I've, I've, I've ministered to people long enough to know that most of you struggle with turning something over to God. This is the God that wants you to give him your life. This is the God who I think can handle the details of the circumstances of your life. Thanks, Pastor. That's certainly plenty to think about, isn't it? As we heard Pastor Clay say today, the Word of God lines up perfectly with what we know from history. What's amazing is that Daniel wrote it long before any of the events we looked at today took place. How great our God is that He can work everything out to the conclusion that He has already decreed. And how great it is for us that the God who gave Daniel these amazing prophecies is the same God that invites us to know Him personally and draw near to Him with our lives. We're glad you spent some time with us for this week's Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our everyday lives. 
Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh. But instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone and everyone who is looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.